0: This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight! You can't handle the truth! We've been talking about the end times, and uh, since I began this study, we've been asking basically two questions, or one question and then expanded, what comes next, or what is the next event on God's calendar, because we're all interested in that. We want to know, because life is larger and longer than what we think right here. I mean, all we know is, you know, i got this financial problem, my car just blew up, I'm getting evicted out of my house, I didn't get the promotion at work, I had this illness, I can't seem to to get over, a relationship has been severed, I've been betrayed, we've got all these things that we deal with here and now, and sometimes they consume all of our energy and all of our bandwidth, and and all we can do is just focus on this immediate problem in front of us, and when we sit back and look at it in the grand scheme of what God has planned for us, it has a tendency of making those mountains just molehills. We know that the rapture is the next thing on the horizon for the church, for the believers. There are no signs that precede the rapture. There's no events that have to take place like they have to for the second coming of Christ. But the fact is it can happen at any time. We talked about that on Tuesday. We will continue talking about that on the next time we meet on Tuesday. But the next event after the rapture is what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And quite honestly... This is the one that should concern us the most. Not the great white throne judgment, we have been saved and our sins have been atoned by the blood of Christ, but this judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, and as we talked about last week it happens in heaven and it happens right after the rapture. It's when you and I will basically give account for what we have done in the flesh since the Holy Spirit has come and redeemed us and given us a new man that's created in the image of Christ. Now, in Scripture, there's a number of judgments. And in order to understand the great white throne judgments, we've got to kind of put that in, in context with the other judgments. The first, uh, there's actually seven judgments. The first of those is called the, uh, the Judgment Seat of Christ, And you can find out about that in a lot of verses, but primarily in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And this is when church age believers, not believers that come to faith during the tribulation, after the rapture, but church age believers, us from Pentecost on, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ in heaven for a reward or a lack of reward and a review of our life. And it's almost like, it's almost like getting ready for the final exam. I don't uh, I don't know if you remember much, but you remember when we were in high school or in college and we would come to class and everybody's laughing or having a good time? And, hey, what'd you do today? I didn't do anything. Oh, the professor's coming in. We open up our books and we get ready to study. And, you know, it's kind of a jovial kind of, I'm here to learn. There's no pressure. There's no end mark here. It's, it's just another class. It's just another teaching. I'm, I'm just learning something to prepare for what happens at the end. But all of a sudden on the day of the final, if you remember, you walk in there and there's a somber feeling in the room. I mean, everybody's really serious. Everybody's intimidated, not really sure if they studied enough, how how this is gonna affect them. And they they don't look anymore, just today is is what they're learning, but they're beginning to look at what this grade they're gonna get on the final and for the course is gonna impact their life in the future. You and I are going to face the great, or we're going to face the judgment seat of Christ, and um, it should be a time of rejoicing, but for many Christians, it'll be a time of trepidation. Two, this is the judgment of Old Testament believers. You find this in Daniel 12, 1 and three, and then some other passages. we're going to be looking at that in the weeks to come. This is all Old Testament believers who will be resurrected and rewarded after the second coming. It Does't happen at the rapture. That's for church-age believers, and we talked about that on a little bit last Sunday, but especially on Tuesday. This will be Old Testament believers when they are, when they are, um, when they are judged. You need to understand that God's, God's people are the Jews. They're not the Gentiles, and they're not the Christians. It's the Jews. There's always been the Jews. The Jews are the apple of God's eye. The fact is, we as Gentile believers, we, of course, could be blessed. We could become proselytes if the Jewish nation didn't reject their king, but they did. And then all of a sudden, it was like, and we see this in the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's almost like God said, time out with the Jews, and he set them aside after 69 weeks, and he birthed us. And if you really study the scriptures, you'll realize that the reason why God showed grace to us is to make his children jealous, to make the Jews jealous. And so all of a sudden we're grafted in as the wild vine and and he's dealing with the church at this point in time. But when the rapture occurs, the Holy Spirit who resides in us will be taken away. The church is taken away. And then all of a sudden the 70th week begins and God's timetable begins with the Jews. And so this Second judgment is Old Testament believers. Third judgment we find in Revelation chapter 20 are tribulation believers. These are the people who actually die, come to faith during the tribulation, and die because of their faith. They're martyrs at that time. And don't be, uh, don't be misled to think that if the rapture occurs today and you've heard the gospel, that you can just come to faith after the rapture. It will not happen. As we talked about two weeks ago. The scripture says in 2 Thessalonians that the Lord will send them a strong delusion so they will believe the lie. And the lie is the fact that it is the, the that is the Antichrist who is the Messiah. It is the Antichrist who is now God in flesh. And you will be deceived. And people that I know that have heard the gospel, if the rapture occurred today, such as my brother, he will become one of the most fervent followers of the Antichrist. So we don't have forever to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Number four, you have the Jews that are living at the second coming of Christ. You have those Jews that physically survive during the tribulation period. Not everybody will be killed, and you'll find that in Ezekiel chapter twenty, all Jews who survive the tribulation will be judged right after the second coming, and that this is those hundred and. Uh, 35 additional days in the book of Daniel it talks about. The saved will enter the millennial kingdom and the lost, of course, will be purged. You have Gentiles now that are living at the second coming. We find that in Matthew 25, and we're going to develop these later on. This is what's commonly known as the sheep and goats judgment. The righteous will enter the millennial kingdom after coming through the tribulation, and the unrighteous will be cast into utter darkness, into hell. The sixth judgment we find is Satan and his fallen angels. We find that in Revelation chapter 20. This is the final judgment of Satan that will take place after the millennial reign. He's locked up for a thousand years. He's let loose at the end of that. He deceives the nations again, which show that even during the millennial reign of Christ, as people get married and have births and die and repopulate themselves, that man's heart is still carnal, no matter how good God is, even like At the Garden of Eden, you had Adam and Eve fall from grace. And they, of course, at the end of that will be Satan and his demons will be judged after the millennium. And then, of course, you have what's called the Great White Throne Judgment, which is the most horrific of all. This is when your name is either written or not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, We find this in Revelation chapter 20, it says the judgment of unrighteous people will occur at the end of the millennium. You will not have to worry about this judgment if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The judgment you need to be concerned about and I need you to be concerned about is the first one, which is the judgment seat of Christ. It comes from this verse primarily, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Now here's what it says. For we, and Paul now is including himself in this judgment, for we must this is not optional you're not going to escape this for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ this is called the bema seat of Christ why Why do we have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? That each one, he begins with we, collectively. We all, all those that believe in Christ, the the church age believers, we're all in this together. We'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ that now are individual. Now it's personal. It's not about the collective body. It's about you and me individually. That each one may receive and when it talks about receiving here, there's two elements of this. There's a, there's a review and there's a reward. I mean, we receive the things done in the body or done in the flesh, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, aren't my sins blotted away? Yes. But your judgment will not be on your sins. Christ already took care of this. Your judgment will be on your faithfulness. Your judgment will be with what you have done with the gift Christ has given you. It's what's, what the church struggles with. It's what we all struggle with. You know, I'm now a believer in Christ, so he has seasoned my life a little bit so I can live my life my way with his blessing. No, you were bought with a price. You're no longer your own. We're now losses and slaves to a great master. We're to, we're to do his bidding. And how we are faithful to him will determine... What kind of rewards or lack of rewards that we will receive at the judgment seat of Christ? Now, the judgment seat, the Greek word here means bema seat. And basically, it's it's an elevated platform where some sort of ruler sits and gives decrees. And, And in literature, there's basically three different pictures of a bema seat. One is what's called the court of justice, where people who have infractions happen to them, people who say, you know, there's been an injustice done to me. I need to set things straight. They'll go to a court of justice and they'll, they'll plead their case and sitting on the elevated platform, the authority seat, the judgment seat, the Bema seat will be a judge and he will issue a ruling of right or wrong in a court of justice. It's also used as where a military commander sits. So a military commander comes and he sits and he's addressing his, his troops and he's disciplining his soldiers and he's issuing commands. And, and so that is also known as a beam of seat. And the third one is more the picture that Paul's talking about here is like an elevated stand in an athletic game where the, the um, athletes who have competed according to the rules stand and receive their rewards and if they have not competed according to the rules they don't I don't know if you remember must be 15 20 years ago now I think his name was Ben Johnson the uh, Canadian sprinter who was like the fastest human being ever and he won all these gold medals and that's really fantastic and he had those medals for less than a couple hours Because immediately after he had won the gold medal, they realized that he had not competed according to the rules and he had used performance-enhanced drugs. And they took those medals away from him. They disqualified him from ever competing again. And his life now is, when we think about him, we don't think of his accomplishments. We think of the judgment that went against him and the fraud because of his inability to follow the rules. When we're looking at this judgment seat of Christ, it appears that Paul has in mind more the, the third element of this where you and I will be judged and our life will be reviewed on how we've run the race. I mean, honestly, have you done? Well, you know, I've gotten some victory in my life and other parts of my life. I don't have victory because it's just too hard. And then we talk about rewards. People go, I don't really want a reward anyway because the scripture says that if I get like one of these crowns the scripture talks about, what I do immediately is I throw it at the feet of Jesus showing that all rewards belong to him. And you know what? If I don't have a crown, then I won't really be all that embarrassed. And, and we have this attitude that we can basically just ask Christ to season in our life and we just rock on doing the things we want to do. And there's no, there's no accountability in that and nothing can be further from the truth. Yeah, but it's just a reward. I don't really care about having a mansion. Just give me this little, you know, lean to, you know, in heaven somewhere and I'll be satisfied, which simply means that's not humility. That's apathy, which simply means we're not willing to work hard to bring glory to our Lord and our master. It's like like being accepted to play on an Olympic basketball team. And just the fact that you're accepted to play is all that matters. You don't show up for the games anymore. You don't really care about getting into the game. I just I don't want to put the effort in. I'm okay. But wait a second, you're representing your country. Your 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 other teammates are depending upon you, and I don't really care about any of that. I just I know that I'm I'm, I'm accepted, and that's just the way it is. I mean, do we honor athletes like that? Do we honor people like that? And yet, many Christians, many of us, live our lives like that because. It's too hard to try to be heavenly minded when the earth seems so good to us. As we look at this judgment seat of Christ, there's a couple of questions we're going to ask. It's a standard who, what, where, why, and when questions. When will this judgment take place? And by the way, where is it going to take place? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? Who will be judged at this judgment. Why are they judged? In other words, uh, um, what's the point of that judgment? And how will they be judged? In other words, on what criteria? Is this a salvation judgment? Which it is not. Is this like a judgment of whether or not to go to heaven and hell? Which it is not. And what are they to do? What are we to do about it right now? Knowing the final's coming, knowing that after the rapture, the next great event will be that you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he does not give a flip about the vacations that we took and the houses that we have and the job promotions that we got. Unless we're serving God with everything we have in our job, He doesn't care. He didn't save us to make a lot of money. He didn't save us to to get promoted for our own glory. He saved us to bring glory and honor to His Son. When, where, who, why, how, and what? Let's look at the when here. We're going to go through these rather quickly. When does the judgment seat of Christ take place? 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time. Well, what time are we talking about? Until the Lord comes. Judgment takes place after the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then, after that happens, each man's praise Our reward will come from God. First event in heaven will be the judgment seat of Christ for all believers, not non-believers. If you're in here and you don't know Christ, you won't be at this judgment. You're going to be at a worse judgment called the great white throne judgment. Where will it take place? Again, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not the judgment seat of man, it's not the judgment seat of the church, it's not some ecclesiastical body, it's the judgment seat of Christ. Why? That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment will obviously occur in heaven because that's where Christ is, in heaven. And then the question of who will be judged. And of course, we find the Second Corinthians passage again. For we, Paul's talking to believers here. He's not talking to non-believers. We must all, every single believer, appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one, each of us, may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, aren't my sins atoned for? Yes, yes, we're not talking about your sins. We're talking about what you're doing with the incredible gift the Lord gave you. This mystery in the Old Testament revealed in the New Testament that the God himself does not reside in temples made with hands. He resides in you. He changes you. He makes you a living sacrifice of God. How much do we trust him? How much do we do things for his glory? How much is it all about us or is it all about him? When something happens to us and we have a decision to make, do we filter it through the prism of does this or does this not bring glory to God? Or do we filter it through the prism of how does it affect me? Does it make my life better or worse? And Does that govern my decision? Have I forgiven as I've been forgiven? Do I love as I've been loved? Romans talks about this. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? Don't you realize that all of us, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ? For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, each of us, must give an account of himself to God. People I haven't forgiven people I hold bitterness towards, faith that I refuse to exercise, going my way, and I know I should tell other people about Jesus. I know I should praise Jesus more. I know I should read my Bible more. I know I should walk away from this sin or this relationship because Christ is in me, and I know it grieves the Holy Spirit and it offends the Lord, but I don't want to because I got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and I'm okay. You're not okay. You won't be okay on this day. Why? Why do we even have the judgment seat of Christ? What is the purpose of this judgment? Again, to the 2 Corinthians passage. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one, each of us, may receive the things done in the body, or the things done with the body. According to what he has done, it's your actions and your deeds, whether good or bad. There's a review and then there's a reward. Well, how can there be a review because your actions and my actions will be judged on whether they're good or bad. And they're not good or bad based on human morality. They're good or bad based on whether or not they give glory to the Lord. Go to work Monday morning. Do what I do brings glory to the Lord? Make tough decisions about other people? I mean, how does it how does it all play out? There'll be a review. And basically, God will look at our lives and He'll look at what we've done. He's done with this incredible gift He's given us. I mean, we so soft-pedal the gospel today that we lose the fact of what Christ has done. I mean, He has saved us and redeemed us. He's forgiven all our sins. He's taken them away. He's brought other people into our life that are closer to us than our own blood and flesh family. Because of my father and my mother and my brother do not know Christ. They can't even relate to the person I am. I have nothing in common with him other than shared physical experiences. But once he brings us together, we find that, like Jesus said, who are my brother who is my mother? And he points to his disciples. And everyone who does the will of my father is my brother and my mother and my sister. And look what he's done for us. And we kind of, we kind of take that light of the gospel and keep it hidden and, and, tucked in really tight because we don't want to share it with anybody because we're afraid the lost world out there who desperately needs to see the Christ in us will throw stones at us or get angry at us. There'll be a review. First, the Lord will review our lives as believers. We see this in Romans 14 again. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so each one will give an account of himself to God. This is not something I stand with my wife or my family. You're not going to have your pastor next to you or, or all the guys. That are gonna, you're not even going to have a lawyer or an advocate. It's you. What have you done with the death of my son? My son died for you. He redeemed you. He chose you from the foundation of the world. He placed the Holy Spirit inside of you. He even now is interceding for you to me. In spite of yourself, what have you done with what I have given you? I mean, Jesus talked about this all the time. Where, you know, to one person gets this, and another person gets this, and another person gets this. And then the landholder or the master of the house comes back and says, What have you done with what I have given you? That's the, that's the Luke 19 passage. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says this. And this is talking about the context of this is talking about the kind of house that we build. What kind of materials do we build it with gold and silver and precious stone? Or do we build it with wood, hay and stubble when it's tested by fire won't even withstand? It says, so each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Does it burn up? Is it consumed? Does it mean nothing? Or did it have some sort of lasting value for all eternity? Second Corinthians 510. We must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ. Why? That each one may receive after a review, the things done in the body, according to what he has done, and the, the things he's done will either be good or bad. And, and who determines whether they're good or bad? I mean, what does that mean? Well, if you'll study a little deeper in Scripture, you'll find that whether they're good or bad really has to do primarily with your motives. One of the things that I'm firmly convinced of is that the judgment seat of Christ, many people who we think are going to receive great adulation will not because it was all done for a selfish motive. It was all done for them. I'm serving God, but I want the glory. And we're going to find some people that we don't even know about, some people that aren't popular, some people that we've never even seen before are going to be lavished on with with rewards and adulation from the Lord because they did it from a pure heart. It's all, all has to do with motives. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men are to be seen by them. Well, why? If I do that, they think I'm spiritual. No, otherwise you have no reward from your father in heaven. Yeah, but 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 I, I did something good. I, I, I gave a charitable deed. I took money that I could have spent for me and I went and I fed homeless people. I, I tied 25% of the church. I, I gave and I gave. Well, what do you mean that's a good thing? No, it's not if you did it just for the praise of men, because if that happens, you will receive nothing from the Father. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, that's it. That's all they get. We're done. They shall have, they already have their reward. Verse 5, and when you pray... Well, wait a second. That's a good thing. You tell us to pray. Prayers communicate. How can prayer be a bad thing? It's not. But if you're doing it out of selfish motives, you have no reward for doing that good thing. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the corners of the street that they may be seen by men. Or sure, lest say to you, they have their reward. It's done. I spent my whole life praying. I know, but if your motives were impure, you've already received everything you're going to receive. And at the the, uh, judgment seat of Christ, your coffers will be empty. What about fasting? Only spiritual people fast. I fast all the time. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. Oh, are you okay? You feeling bad? I'm fasting for the Lord. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. I surely say to you, they have their reward. We're done. It's finished. There'll be a time when God will test our motives. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. For each man's praise will come from God. God will praise each man, and it's possible, actually it's more than possible, that a lot of these praises will come in the form of crowns. You find those in Scripture, there are five of them, five crowns. And I want you to understand, we're not really into crowns. We don't have a king that wears a crown. Um, We don't honor the crown kind of thing. You know, it's not part of our, it's not part of our culture but the reality is a crown is like a victor's crown it's it's like a, a stephanos and it's a, our, a diadem is like a ruling crown and, and what it is it's a it's a symbol of of a job well done it's it's a it's an honor that's given and you and I have a tendency of thinking well you know what i'm okay with not a crown i'm okay with not really striving i mean we 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 have this um we have this mentality in our nation especially with millennials no offense millennials that uh there's no need to strive hard. There's no need to do better than somebody else is going to take care of you. You're going to be fine. And you just learn to live at a standard of living, you know, do whatever somebody else is willing to give to you. And, you know, and, and that kind of falls into the Christian life too, that we think, well, you know, okay, I don't really need a crown. I don't really need to to glorify the Lord that much because, you know, I'm okay just, you know, being, you know, a mutt rather than a thoroughbred when it comes to, to serving the Lord. And we just, we, we have that kind of mentality when it comes to, Serving the Lord, but what we do on earth is a training ground for our rewards in heaven. And there are incredible privileges and honors that come from serving God. And it is crazy. It is crazy. For example, if you just look at the millennium with Christ, it is crazy for us to squander 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 small years here on earth and in doing so forfeit great rewards or great honor. Great responsibility, even just during the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. And we do it all the time. Sacrificing tomorrow for today, because I'm not willing to wait for the, you know, 35 minutes for the meal to cook. I'd rather slap it in the microwave and get it done in three. It's kind of how we we view life. But there are crowns that are given. One of the crowns is called the imperishable crown. And it's found from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Look at what it says here. It says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. It is crazy to line up in a marathon and to train for a marathon and do not run to win. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. If you're running a marathon on Saturday, you don't go eat a dozen donuts on Friday. You know, you, you train your body, you watch your diet, you get a lot of sleep. Now they do it for to obtain a perishable crown, something that doesn't matter. Paul using examples of athletes, but we do it for an imperishable crown. We do it for something that, that won't go away. So what is this, what is this crown given for? Next two verses. Therefore, I run not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified or cast away. This is a serious thing. I'm running the Christian life and I want to finish the race strong and I want to give glory to my Lord. And I want to be the winner so I could take my crown and take it to my God and give it to him. So I, I've, I've made decisions in my life. I've, I've focused on what I'm, I'm willing to do. I, I've thrown away some stuff that hinder me from my goal, and I've added some stuff to my life that helped me achieve my goal. The imperishable crown is a reward for those who consistently practice self-discipline and self-control, and it's a crown that will not fade, will not be taken away. It is not corruptible. It is imperishable. Much of the church has no clue what this even means. After that, we have what's called the crown of righteousness. We find this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, he says, Paul, in his last letter, talking about finishing the race strong, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me, when? On that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Do you long for him to come? Because when he comes, he sets everything straight. If the Do you pray every day, come Lord Jesus, so I can stand before you and I can offer my life to you and I'd rather be with you than with anything in this world right now? Are we still holding on to this world so tightly that we're praying Christ doesn't come because I need a little more time to straighten my life up or I need some things I need to accomplish. I need cross things off my bucket list. I haven't had as much fun as I want to have. The crown of righteousness is reward for those who eagerly look for the Lord's coming and live a righteous life in view of that. That's why the rapture, understanding it, is so important. We have the crown of life. We talked about this when we are going through James. It's in James 1, 2. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Endure temptation and love him. We also see it in Revelation chapter 2. Do not fear any of those things, which you're about to suffer. We're enduring temptations, and now we're suffering. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation in 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Faithful unto death. This crown of life is a sufferer's crown, that is given to those who faithfully endure and persevere under the trials and temptations and tribulations and tests of this life. Why does God let terrible things happen to good people? Test tests our faith. I mean, God lets terrible things happen to bad people. But when it happens to us, we're supposed to endure differently. We're supposed to, to praise him no matter what happens. We're supposed to bear up under it. We're supposed to be blessed when we endure trials and tribulations and temptations. And for those who do, faithful unto death, there's a, a crown of life that is given. I'm reminded in Revelation that there are certain promises that are given to overcomers. Overcomers who overcome the calling of this life. Overcomers who overcome the test of Satan, the, the temptations of the flesh. And every time in one of these seven letters he talks about the overcomers, he promises them something unbelievable. It's almost like the crown of life now fleshed out in front of us. I want you to, I want you to just look at these. I'm not going to take time. We don't have time to go into all of these and explain what they mean. But listen to what is promised to those people who overcome the flesh, who overcome the enemy, who overcome our apathy, who, who overcome just the trappings of this life. The word overcome means victory, to prevail, or triumph. Revelation chapter 2. This is seven letters to seven churches. These first couple letters begin with him giving this cryptic phrase, who has an ear to hear, let him hear before the letter before the uh, promise to the overcomer. And in the last couple letters, it's after that. And we we talked when we went through the book of Revelation, why that is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, who prevails, who triumphs, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What if you don't overcome? Does that promise still apply to you? Revelation 2.11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Verse 17, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name which, written which no one knows except him who receives it. Christ will give us a new name. It belongs just to us if we overcome. 26 to 29. And he who overcomes and keeps my word until the end, to him I will give powers over the nations. And then at the bottom of this, it's always, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that cryptic phrase is placed uh, at the end of the promise to the overcomers, and there's a reason for that. Revelation chapter 3, to him who overcomes, what? What will you do for those believers who overcome? This is a promise that you and I can obtain. That person shall be clothed in a white garment, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Lord, this is my son, my brother, my faithful servant. And confess your name before the Father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, what? What will you do? I will make him a pillar in a temple of my God, a foundation. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Be one of those that know the new name of Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whom overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Really? As I also overcame and sat down on my Father's throne. Not for everybody, but he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Revelation 21, we see it again. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, my son. We have the incorruptible crown, crown of righteousness. We have the crown of life. We also have a crown of rejoicing. We find that in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. It says, "For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? It is coming, for you are our glory and joy. And this crown is, is given to those who win people for Christ. who wins souls is wise," the scripture says. And then we have the final crown, which is the crown of glory we find this in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. This shepherd's crown is reserved for church leaders, who faithfully discharge their duty lovingly and graciously to the people God has placed in their care. Crown, life, crown of righteousness, the rewards that are given at the judgment seat of Christ that are yours, listen, for the losing. They're yours for the losing. Devote ourselves to be pleasing the Lord. It's amazing what would happen. There's also two other Two other rewards that may take place. The first one is a greater responsibility and authority in the coming kingdom of God, in the millennial kingdom. We find that in Luke chapter 19, the uh, parable of the minus. Are you turned to that? Let's read this together. Verse 11. And as he heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Because you think the kingdom of God is coming, I want to share with you one other parable about what is life like in the kingdom. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for for himself a kingdom and to return. He called for 10 of his servants, 10 of us, and delivered to them 10 minas, and said to him, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, that he commanded those servants to which he had given the money and to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your minus has earned ten minus. And he said, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful and very little have authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Master, your minor has earned five minas." Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Here's the church today. Then another came saying, master, here is your mina which I've kept and put under a handkerchief, for I feared you because you're an astute man, a stare man, and you collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You know that I was uh, an astern man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at least my coming I might have collected it with interest? He said to him, take the miner from him and give it to him who has ten. But he said to him, master, he has ten minors, For I say to you that everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Each one of us have been given a certain gift. Each one of us have received the same. I did not receive more of the Holy Spirit than Scott. I did not receive a better salvation than Scott. Holy Spirit saved me. Holy Spirit saved Scott. Holy Spirit saved Tim. All of us stand before the judgment seat of Christ as equals, all forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. God has given to me his Holy Spirit. He didn't give me more of the Holy Spirit than he gave Scott or more of the Holy Spirit than he gave Tim. The fact is we are all complete in Christ. But what did we do with what he gave us? He gave me 10, he gave Scott 10, he gave Tim 10. And when he comes back and we give an account for what he has done for us, you will find that those who have faithfully used what he's given you, will be honored. And those of us who just rock on with our life like it means nothing, will not. The second possible reward comes from Daniel 12.3, and we won't look at that today. But it's possible that those that are overcomers will have an increased capacity and ability to reflect the Lord's glory. And if that doesn't motivate you, that's sad. Because that's what we're supposed to be doing now, is reflecting His glory and His goodness and His love, not trying to build little financial mini-empires for ourselves. Who, what, where? What are we supposed to do about it? The final's coming. The test is coming. You and I will give an account for the Lord, what we've done for Him. Not, Not a salvation account. This isn't a, His name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, Scott, you know, the angels cast him into hell. It's not the, not the case at all. That's already been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our salvation, if you know him, is secured. But the day will come, we'll have to give an account of how we've lived for him. That's why holy living and sanctification is so important. It does, not just doesn't make our life better now being in obedience to him. It, it has eternal benefits. What are we supposed to do about it right now? I'm going to give you 15 that the Scripture teaches. I'm just going to go through these quickly. Fifteen areas of your life that the Scripture shows that we will have to give an account for. That will determine how many minus we have earned for the Lord. Matthew 10 and Hebrews 6 talks about how we treat other believers. How do we treat them? You know, we're supposed to be closer to each other than we are our own families. Is that true? are the greatest enemies in our life right now, Other believers, people that we don't like because they should have acted some way, but they didn't. I got that. I should have acted some way, but I didn't too. If I show you grace, can you show me grace? Because we're all f- forgiven in the blood of Christ. How do we treat other believers? How do we employ God's given talents and abilities? Do we employ it for us? If somebody's a really good salesman, then I can sell snowshoes to an Eskimo. Well, is that what I'm doing to make myself millions and millions of dollars? Or am I using that same gift to be able to evangelize and become a soul winner, to be able to tell others? There's no temporal today reward for that. If I spend all my time working for God, I won't be able to work for me. We don't work for us. We work for the king, and he takes care of us. How do we employ our God-given talents and abilities? Matthew 6, how do we use our money? How do we use our money? Is it about us? Do we give God the best, or do we give God what's left over at the end? Are we willing to sacrifice a vacation to be able to minister to somebody else with our money, or is that too big a sacrifice? You ever given a car away? I'm just giving somebody a car because they, they needed it, and you just drive something else. I mean, it's just a car. How well we endure personal injustice and being mistreated. Do we fight back? Do we argue? Do we You've taken that from me. I have my rights. How do we trust the Lord in that and realize that it's a blessing when that happens? We're to rejoice when that happens because it's the exact same way they treated the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we endure sufferings and trials? This I find most discouraging, most discouraging. Man, we talk about how great is heaven. Heaven is great. Heaven's fantastic. I've seen this ever since I've been a pastor, even before I was a pastor. And then all of a sudden, the doctor says, you're going to go to heaven in three weeks. Three weeks. What we should say is, hallelujah. I don't have to put up with this stuff anymore. There's no more hurt and pain and suffering and disappointment. I'm no longer in Satan's domain anymore that I can can actually stand in the presence of my God, who I've spent my life serving. But it's exactly the opposite. Oh, gosh, help me, help me, pray, help me. I don't want to go see him. I want to stay here in a decaying body. It's amazing, isn't it? We spend an incredible amount of money and time trying to prolong the inevitable. And if you're a believer in Christ who has rewards stored up for you, why would we not? Even Paul said that. What's better for me? be with the Lord or stay with you. My desire is to be with Him, which is far better. But since that hasn't happened, looks like I'll have to stay down here with you for more fruitful service. Not serving myself, but serving Him. How do we spend our time? How much time do you spend thinking of Him, praying to Him, reading His books, serving Him? How much time do you spend on Facebook or just doing stuff we want to do? Give an account for that someday. How we run the particular race God has given us. He's given me a race to run. He's given you a race to run. Those races are different because we have different temperaments and different callings, but in every one of us, we're supposed to cross the finish line strong. How are we doing on that? We'll give an account for that someday. How effectively we control our fleshly appetites. Sin is always pleasurable. How are we doing in that? We'll give an account for that someday. How many souls we witness to and win for Christ. If we experience, if we truly have experienced this joy of Jesus, why don't we share it with other people? How much the rapture means to us and how it shapes our lives. You find that in the 2 Timothy 4 passage. How faithful we are to God's word and God's people. Is God's word the defining truth barometer in your life or your feelings and your wants and your supposed needs? or Is that? We will give an account for that someday. How hospitable are we to strangers? Do you open up your home? I mean, I'm, I'm always impressed with believers who open up their home for other people. I've, we've done it ever since we've been I got saved and um, it's, it's what we're supposed to do. We have these 2,000 square foot homes that um, three people stay in. And there's other people that are hurting out there. And, and we don't invite them in because you know it just messes up my house. And when I want to watch television, I don't want somebody else sitting there. And we're not even going to account for that. We're even going to account for that. 12, how faithful are we in our vocations? Are we serving us? Are we serving him? How we support others in ministry? Are we encouraging? Do we financially bless them? Do we, do we get alongside and help them? How we use our tongues? Well, that's a convicting one, isn't it? Especially when we, and by the way, your tongues also means your fingers on Facebook. You know, how we, how we can be so harsh and so bitter towards people writing them and texting How do we do that? We're supposed to speak love. We're supposed to speak truth. We're supposed to speak reconciliation. We're supposed to speak the words that were spoken to us. These are some of the areas in which Scripture shows us that we're going to have to give an account. But there's rewards on the end. There's blessings on the end. There's well done, good and faithful servant. And if the Lord not saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant, isn't motivation enough, then your Jesus is way too small. Way too small. Questions I had to ask myself this week. Am I ready to stand before the Lord and have my life judged by His standards? If I found out today that I had pancreatic cancer and that I would be dead by Thanksgiving. Son, it's just the way it is. Body's falling apart. Uh, make your peace, get your things in order, because you ain't going to be here by the end of November. How would it change all the stuff I worry about now? Would I I worry about things at work? I ain't going to be there. Would I worry about my retirement? I ain't got a retirement. Would I worry about this or that or that? Would I sit back and all of a sudden reflect on how much time I didn't be concerned about what I've sent ahead of me in heaven? People I haven't witnessed to The the devotion I haven't had, how I failed him in so many ways by seeking my own agendas rather than him. That day will come to every one of us. If the rapture doesn't take place, you know, maybe we'll be lucky enough to drop dead of a heart attack. But if we don't or we're not killed in some car wreck, you know, what, what the future for most of us is the future genie wins going through right now. Where all of a sudden everything seems great and you're walking you know, 20 miles a week and all of a sudden you have something wrong with your body and it just goes down slow. Some people faster, some people slower. But we don't live this life forever. And it will become a point in time when there is no tomorrow. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of getting your right heart right with the Lord. Now is the day of reestablishing your priorities. So we live for the kingdom that never fails And the rewards that never perish. There's no escape. This judgment seat will come to each of us. And if so, what are we prepared to do about it? What changes are you willing to make in this life to be rewarded for the next? Time is not our friend, time is not on our side. When I was young, when I was in my 20s, like these guys over here, um, you know what? I got plenty of time because old people are in their 60s and 70s. That's never going to happen. And then you have children. You get married and have children. And all of a sudden, when you have children, you, uh, you, see, you see this barometer in front of you. Wow, my son is a year old now. So you're a year older. My son's 12. 12 years have passed, dude. You know, my son's 20. You're 20 years old. And the next thing you know, you wake up and all that stuff is behind you. I mean, I'm 62. The vast majority of my life has already been lived. But you know, the vast majority of your life may have also already been lived, even if you're 20. We don't know the number of days God has allowed for us. But we do have the ability to spend them honoring Him now, beginning today. So since we're all going to face the judgment seat of Christ, let me encourage you to reevaluate everything in your life in light of eternity. And if it doesn't make an impact in eternity, then why are we doing it? It's like investing in something that will never give long range returns. Amen. Let me pray.